1: Hello. On this week's New Statesman podcast, I, Alva and Anoush discuss Annalise Dodds, the economic situation and whether or not we'll see a return to austerity. Plus, you ask us, PMQs, what is it good for?
0: So as we've entered the sort of second phase of lockdown, a lot of the conversation has been shifting to not only what's been happening to the economy, but how it can possibly recover and Alva you interviewed the shadow chancellor this week Annalise Dodds did she give you any insights into sort of what Labour's policy will be because at the moment they're kind of critiquing the government but not necessarily offering their own solutions are they
2: yeah I'm so I suppose I've sort of got two two answers to that in that I did ask her directly about her priorities as she's taken on this role and I suppose her answer was quite vague But I still think a bit instructive, where I think, Mm. but then also I think there's a broader point about the things that came out in the whole interview, which I'll talk about after. But in terms of what she said, their first priority is to reflect people's concerns and experiences to government, as she put it, which I thought was quite interesting because the whole way through speaking to her, she really conveyed a sincere sense of being a grassroots politician and being very engaged on a local level and not really seeing much of a distinction between high level frontline politics and the politics of the grassroots and local organisers and ward organisers and and activists and so on. So I think she really does see herself as a conduit and she sees her Labour colleagues as conduits for the concerns that people are experiencing on the ground. So just MPs who are plugged into their communities and pick up issues with the furlough scheme or provision for the self-employed or whatever it is and reflecting those to government to get those ironed out. And then the second priority was to make the case for what happened later, which I think was interesting because I haven't had that much of a sense from Keir Starmer yet as to how much he wants to engage in that conversation at the moment. But definitely she sees it as her role to make the case that as she put it, there has to be a sort of new normal when we go back to normal, that we can't have such high levels of insecure work, a lack of financial resilience in, in lots of households, that those fundamental structures need to change.
0: Stephen do we have any indication of of sort of what direction the government's going to go in in terms of trying to help the country recover there's so much fear well at least from the from the people that I've been interviewing for the social affairs kind of pieces that that we've been running that there'll be a return to austerity
1: yeah so we've had a leak to the telegraph suggesting that Rishi Sunak is of the view that they should just stabilize the proportion of the debt to gdp ratio so obviously the, the state has taken on huge debts to finance this crisis and there are there are more than two schools of thought on this but i'm just going to talk about those for for ease of for ease of communication there's essentially the the debt doesn't really matter you just treat it like war debt. you just focus on getting growth hopefully greener growth than we had before and that that fixes your problem on on the debt in the long term and then there's the kind of no 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 you need to pay down the debt so the uh, the austerity argument i was going to say the austerity argument with the the slight difference, and that's why I realized it was not helpful to say it there too, there's then within the, you have to worry about debt school of thought, there's basically the austerity argument, which is basically you have to worry about it, regardless of where you are in the economic cycle. So, you know, you cut and you don't need to worry about having a, you You have to worry about having a day-to-day account balance, even in a, in a, in a downturn. So you just need to start worrying about that today. And then there's the kind of, well, at some point this debt will become a problem, but that will not be true until we return to growth. From everything Boris Johnson has said in public, and from what Rishi Sunak is, is said to have, have said in, in private, and, and what those who are familiar with his thinking have said to me, you know, he he very much is minded not to have another round of austerity. With, I mean, in many ways, in some ways, the kind of what does the government think on this is is slightly arid. If you said, because if you said to the average Tory MP, so what we're going to do after this is 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 try and deal with this debt in the same way we tried to balance the books 2010 to to kind of 2017, 2018, they would kind of look at you like you'd grown a second head and go, well, yeah, you can feel free to bring a, a budget doing that, but I will feel free to vote it down because obviously by the end of that period, the political opposition to further cuts had just become so acute basically everywhere. That will not be the case, right? However, it's important to remember that even stabilizing the debt is probably quite difficult and probably does mean, you know, just as like the end of austerity didn't mean the unpicking of it, it meant the kind of freezing slash pausing of it for most of the state. It would similarly be quite tight rather than it being a further round of, of, of austerity.
0: Mm-hmm. I found this topic really interesting because from looking at what the government's doing, you know, from certain angles, it really feels like austerity obviously never never stopped, or at least the effects of it never stopped. But also that it's almost doing the same thing again and and putting the burden onto the shoulders of uh, local authorities in order to sort of, you know, outsource the cuts in a way. Because at the beginning of this, before lockdown, a week before lockdown, Robert Jenrick was saying, we'll fund whatever is necessary for councils to do to bring in all of the, the lockdown measures. And obviously they've all been spending far beyond their means to to be able to do that. And now every day, you know, in, on local news sites, you're seeing stories about council budget black holes appearing. And all these councils are much closer to bankruptcy than they were before, because that whatever it takes kind of promise to reimburse whatever councils spend hasn't turned out to be true. And of course, the government has committed new funding for for local authorities, but it's nowhere near enough. and, And you wonder whether or not that promise is going to be kept. And that really reminds me of what was happening in the sort of first round of austerity, You know, where cuts to local government meant that people were seeing their councils cutting things that were important to them rather than central government. And it almost feels like the same thing has been happening at this point. But of course, we haven't noticed the effect of it yet, because councils have been allowed in this period to spend more than they usually would be able to in terms of keeping a balanced budget. So, you know, when you look at things like that, particularly as social care is a responsibility of local authorities, you think, when did austerity ever really go away?
2: Yeah, I think that's such a good point, because right before lockdown started the budget was on you know coronavirus had already come to the UK and Rishi Sunak already had to bring in a sort of emergency coronavirus budget on top of the original budget and around that conversation it was before lockdown and before we had fully appreciated the economic impact of the virus but in the conversation around the budget Most of which is redundant. The the conversation was: Is austerity over? And Stephen rightly pointed out that in some ways, it's not a terror. And actually, the head of the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, said the same thing: that in some ways, it's not a terribly meaningful question because people will define austerity in different ways. But I think that the important thing to consider when thinking about whether austerity would be possible after this is that all of those Institute for Fiscal Studies graphs and so on really clearly demonstrated that like what I would define as austerity is still baked into many government department spending plans that the, the cuts that were made a long time ago in various ways haven't been reversed in any meaningful way. So the answer to is austerity over was arguably no that like the long term effects of of those cuts were still in place, even though some of the sort of the rhetoric and other policy decisions associated with austerity had changed. But ultimately, like in some ways, there'd be no more fat to cut off. Like that, those departments are already you know completely lean. And I mean, people would some people would argue that you know it wasn't necessarily fat that was being cut off in the first place. But the looking forward, looking at where you could cut corners in in departmental spending, I don't think that you necessarily would have very much scope to do that.
1: Yeah, because one of the things I feel we were talking about at the start of this parliament was, okay, the government has won on an explicitly will end austerity platform, but its fiscal strategy could not really honestly be described in that way, what will happen with that from a kind of both of social harm's perspective and an electoral perspective? And I guess kind of the thing I realise I don't know, and I'm intrigued to know what you make of this as Anoush, as the kind of, you know, as our kind of ultimately our, our correspondent for for the the end effects of of the stuff that they stand up and announce, is was the political resistance to continuing cuts, obviously was part of why they lost the majority in 2017, part of why they were struggling to win votes in the run-up to the 2017 election in Parliament, was that because they ran out of cuts that affected other parties' voters? Yeah, that was why they already had to abandon the welfare cuts, etc., etc. Or is it because the effects of the cuts and people didn't mind yeah, then people kind of read an article about how bad it was, but they didn't notice any material effect in their, their sort of city centre or whatever. Is it that the effects of the cuts from 2010 to 2015 are now being felt and are inviting political opposition?
0: It's a really good question, isn't it? And I do think that the problem with um, austerity as a sort of political argument for people who are opposed to it is that, as Alva says, it does mean different things to to different people and people experience it in different ways, or people experience it, but don't know that that's what it is. So you, this is the reason why I think it is actually the, the effects of it reaching the people who perhaps have more, maybe live in more conservative um, constituencies, or have more cultural and social sort of cachet in terms of who's listened to by, by our politicians on, on both sides of the house, really. I think that's probably more of the reason for the shift in opinion. Because although those cuts were, of course, placed on the sort of narrower shoulders, as has been sort of proved time and time again by, by various reports, they have trickled up in a way. So, you know, you could have a lifelong Conservative voter, many of whom I met during the 2017 election campaign and the 2019 election campaign. Who have noticed things? You know, they've noticed their road being in a bad state. They've noticed that their post office is closed, and now they have to take a longer bus journey to get to another one. But the the bus is incredibly expensive now, and you know they might be able to afford it, but they still think, "Oh, that's not really on," and things like that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to (laughs) be on Parliament Square with a placard, you know, cheering on Owen Jones at a People's Assembly rally. But you know, they've noticed the sort of loss in their in the fabric of their day to day lives and i think that's one of the reasons why in 2017 people were turning to vote for for parties that they hadn't necessarily voted for in the past and it wasn't all young young people who who signalled that shift and that also could have been the case in 2019 if if the labor party had appealed to people in a different way and i've spoken on this podcast before about the way that you can talk to people who don't necessarily chime or sort of jive with the austerity rhetoric, but do and have seen the effects in their local area and on their day-to-day lives, even if they're not the people who are most vulnerable or most precarious in society. So I do think it has, it's trickled up, it has had a trickled up effect on people, which has made them question their political sort of allegiances.
2: And then there's the question, I suppose, of where Labour will position itself in that right. Stephen, what indications have we had so far of how they're going to approach this?
1: I guess there's the tonal and the political question, right? In the tonally at the moment, their kind of big thing is we're constructive. We're not with sort of heavy inverted commas around the actual being constructive, right? And what they what they're trying to do is is produce a narrative, particularly at PMQs, which we'll, we'll discuss later, about Starmer being, you know, solid, dependable, reliable, open minded, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, on top of the detail against Prime Minister, who is basically none of those things, right? That's the dividing line they're trying to create and entrench in the minds of voters. In terms of the sort of substantial position, I mean, obviously, you, you'll have a sort of better idea having spoken to Annalise uh, Dodds this week. But essentially, in many ways, they are, yeah, you know, they are still explicitly an anti-cuts party. The question is, Is what is the economic dividing line if you have a situation in which the Conservative Party continue to be rhetorically, at least, also an anti-cuts party?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, this is slightly tangential to the discussion of where the economy will be going and the debate around that. But I think just while we're on the subject, I think that the thing I would want to talk about from the Annalisa Dodds interview is sort of I think the questions it raises about the, the division of Labour within the Labour front bench, because basically, I hope people will glean from the interview that she's incredibly nice and warm and is very, genuinely very well liked across the Labour Party and has retained a very good relationship with the left of the party, having been on John McDonnell's shadow treasury team. So she isn't considered a Corbynite, but has worked very well with them. And there's been a sort of interest in what her quote unquote real politics would turn out to be working under Starmer and in a senior role. But I think the thing that came out from the interview, I think it's, a, it's an open question. I just think it would be interesting for people reading it to think about is that, you know, she, she is quite unwilling to talk, for example, about how she came to her Labour politics at the beginning of the new Labour era. She really didn't want to talk about Blair. She really didn't want to talk about Corbyn and she didn't really talk about Starmer, but there's like a great sort of warmth and emphasis on on being just, just Labour and not adhering to any particular wing and avoiding that sort of factional infighting. And my feeling was that like the fact that she comes across as so nice and is so well liked is in itself quite political. I mean, people can think about whether whether this is true or not, but I think that certainly her, her approach to politics struck me as quite conciliatory. And I've seen it suggested elsewhere that she was maybe picked as shadow chancellor over Rachel Reeves because she was considered to be more pliable. And I think that's just interesting in terms of whether looking forward she's going to because she's incredibly able she's a former academic whether she's actually going to put her cards on the table and have some of her own ideas for how Labour should be taking on this argument or whether actually she was chosen as a as a loyal capable person who can take on the politics of the leader at the time and will ultimately just be accommodating of the vision and direction set by Keir Starmer himself.
1: Yeah, I guess this is one of the kind of weird things that we sort of know we don't know, although I guess I touched on this very briefly in my column this week, which is because they are in the process of hiring a large chunk of their staff, mm-hmm. we don't actually know how assertive any of them are likely to be because at the moment, right, the only person who has a policy person is Keir Starmer Mm. and this thing's right there's obviously I'm a long-term believer than what you should do is you should pick the politician who is most politically proximate to you as your shadow chancellor who could yeah the person who's most who's able to do it who's most politically proximate to you Mm -hmm. what I think is interesting is the relationship she has with Ed right where they have Julia Blunk on Twitter put it as yeah they have a kind of like you know business in the front party in the back style relationship right and then Annalise does the I would never do anything bad I'm very reassuring and very nice. Mm -hmm. You don't need to feel panicked by the Labour Party. And Ed is doing a very good job, I think, doing the kind of like, Rishi Sunak has left business behind. While using actually the fact that he is very warm in person and he's good at making people feel valued to do the kind of like, I'm going to talk to people in the Federation of Small Businesses and the CBI and make them feel, you know, warm.
2: That's a really good point. That's sort of good cop, bad cop approach to your economic policy.
0: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
2: And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. This week's question comes from an anonymous listener who asks How much does Prime Minister's questions cut through and actually matter in voters' minds?
0: Anush, what do you think? So I think it's difficult to answer this question because I think indirectly it does matter because although no one, not many people tune into it, and it doesn't usually, as we've discussed before, produce news lines that would, that would cut through into the evening news or the usual kind of news that that normal people tune into. I think that it does affect the way that the leaders of either party are written up by the print press. So, for example, Keir Starmer was, you know, the consensus was that he had a really good PMQs last week, so not yesterday's, but the one the one before. And you could immediately, I mean, I don't know whether you had the same thing, but anecdotally I could immediately detect a warmth sort of around him from My grandma who I speak to much more than I usually do because of the coronavirus lockdown circumstances from people who aren't necessarily tuning into politics every day. And that's because, you know, there might be more pictures of him in the paper than usual, because of someone's written a a sort of complimentary sketch about him in in one of the papers like the eye or something that that a lot of people get that trickles into sort of broadcast news and and it just creates a sort of atmosphere around someone so I do think it can not every week but I do think it can sort of shift sort of the reputation or the the vibe of someone in people's minds so for that reason, I do think that it can cut through and is important but in a in a way that's very difficult to pin down I don't think you could ever measure that effect.
1: I think I completely agree with that. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think in some ways it's indirect impact is a bit like when, so someone in one of the digital teams for the Conservatives once said, they said Facebook is what actually matters. They said, but Twitter is the thing that ultimately the people who, when push comes to shove, will decide whether or not the digital team has done anything that day. They were like, so you have this weird thing, right, where you do things for Twitter so you can continue to get buy-in for the stuff on Facebook that actually matters. And in some ways, I think it's kind of like that, but with political coverage in general. But it also, as uh, Tom Hamilton and Aisha Hazarika in their very good book, Punch and Duty Politics kind of layout, I think operates as a kind of stress testing mechanism for political leaders, almost. Like, why has Keir Starmer, of the last three, he's sort of palpably won two and then kind of semi-drawn, or you can call the last one a toss-up, which, given expectations, probably, yeah, you're probably you're happier with that if you're Boris Johnson, right? It's partly because Boris is not particularly on top of the brief, et cetera, et cetera. But the central reason why the government is in a bit of a mess is because they have made mistakes around their handling of the pandemic, particularly around care homes. Right. Mostly you lose PMQs because of what of what you've done before. And in another week, I think Keir would have struggled to win because the party's position on schools opening is somewhat muddy because you have kind of an official position. You have the position of various backbenchers. You have grandees from the past saying one thing or another. Right. And so I think what he often does is it, it stress. It's a useful way for a leader of going, oh, so for example, Keir did not ask him about schools. Why didn't he ask that? Well, because he would have been leading with his glass jaw on the the divides within Labour on it. So it's a good way of going, oh right. Well, if I can't ask about X, that means that I probably need to fix X. And so I think those are its kind of two values.
0: Alva, what do you think?
2: Yeah, so again, influenced by Tom Hamilton and and Aisha Hazarika on this one, uh, because I'm reading their book at the moment. I've nearly finished it and I find it so enlightening in so many different ways. I think that maybe there's a sort of, I mean, I agree with what both of you have said. I think it's probably the performance and the substantive impact, in that there's been a lot of talk about. You know, Keir Starmer being, you know, terribly impressive and forensic, and, you know, so, and Boris Johnson's been kind of bumbling. And definitely I've seen that trickle through to friends of mine and my parents and people who aren't so interested in politics. I think, you know, people saying that Keir Starmer is quite good actually, which is, you know, mm-hmm. definitely very, very good for his approval ratings. But then I think also he's shown that he is quite good. Maybe not perfect because he hasn't done it very much yet, but he's quite good at using it to set the news agenda and push things forward. So at both PMQs, I thought that there was a lot of strategy behind the the way immediately after last week, Boris Johnson had said that the advice that Keir Starmer quoted on care homes was incorrect. And then he was immediately called back to the Commons to correct it. And there was a bit of a hoo-ha, but ultimately... The government had to concede the point on care homes that their guidance had been wrong and it stayed on the news for another day and then again this week there was the strategy which I think was always in place that Keir Starmer announced that Labour would be introducing an amendment to oppose the um, immigration NHS surcharge and then they you know they they formally announced that directly afterwards and there's a petition and so on. But then there's also the other impact of having the the questions that way, which means that Boris Johnson got so flustered, he ended up committing to bringing in a test and trace program across the country by the 1st of June, which I'm I'm fairly sure he'd had no intention of committing to before PMQ mm. started. And I think that I'm, I'm sure that isn't the only example of things he has accidentally committed to in the heat of the moment. And I think that Keir Starmer is creating pressure for him down the line in that way.
0: Yeah, I, I, I I'm really glad you mentioned that. That sort of rattling him into making that promise because maybe previous prime ministers wouldn't let being rattled at PMQs get to them to the extent that they would, you know, propose something that could quite possibly fail and reduce public trust. But Boris Johnson is that type of people pleasing politician, so that's another way that PMQs can cut through where you sort of. rattle someone because everyone in the chamber in that moment believes that PMQs is important, even if it's not really that important, into saying something that is going to be an important part of the national conversation afterwards. And you can tell Boris Johnson is rattled by Keir Starmer's, or at least his previous performance at PMQs, because he actually said he said something, he was trying to mock him and he was like, oh, forensic mind that he is. So he would clearly read some of those write-ups, hadn't he, about how, what a fantastic forensic mind Keir Starmer has. And so, you know, those write-ups might not necessarily matter that much in day-to-day life. But if they rattle the prime minister into saying things that, you know, even some of his own cabinet ministers have been contradicting, then, then it does matter.
1: Yeah, I also think the other way that they matter, that we kind of sort of forget because this doesn't presently apply to either political leader is that they matter because they keep the parliamentary party happy. David Cameron once, I actually can't remember now if it was three or four, but David Cameron once said that he thought that you could not lose PMQs three in a row and keep your job. Or maybe he said four and Ed said three. Doesn't matter. One of them thought it was three. One of them thought it was four. But crucially, throughout the whole of the 2015, 10 to 2015 situation, parliament, you had a Labour leader who was not the choice of a majority of Labour MPs and had not been the choice of a majority of members in 2010, and who MPs had doubts about, which obviously turned out to be broadly fair enough, yet he did not face a single serious attempt to remove him as leader, and he did lead them into the 2015 election. With Cameron, you had someone whose whole promise was, look, I know you don't like some of these heresies, but don't worry, I'll win. Mm. Who had failed to win, and then had baked in some of those heresies by, you know, having coalition with like the hated Lib Dems. And yet he... Similarly, the most serious challenge he faced to his leadership was from Adam Afriy, which, yeah, I mean, who's he exactly? <laughs> um, so, so it does have a really important role if you have like a problem with your parliamentary party. At the moment, that doesn't really matter because neither of them really do. There are quite a lot of men elected in 2015 who and before in the Conservative Party who fear they've been left on the shelf by this government. But it, that's a problem they might be able to fix through like a clever reshuffle or something. At the moment, that aspect of it doesn't matter. But I think by the end of the Parliament, that aspect probably will matter to at least one of those leaders. At what There will be points in which we go, well, if they'd lost that, probably they would have had leadership problems. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan, our political correspondent, Alva Ray. Patrick Maguire will be back from his holiday. We haven't sent him to the gulag or anything just quite yet. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do subscribe to the New Statesman in print or online. Our music is Devil by the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons.